0: really good, everybody. This is Nathan Albach, and welcome to the show, where we uh, talk about people's stories, and misinformation, and advertising, and culture wars, and really whatever I think is uh, really good at the time. <laughs> but yeah, so happy you're here. Uh, my guest today is Oliver Trolldy. Um I started following Oliver's work about a year ago, and soon found that Even though ideologically we aren't aligned in a ton of ways, um, he was someone who makes really good faith cultural critiques and is open to changing his mind and honestly reminds me a lot of myself um at like a temperamental level just how we kind of go about conversation and and the way we think about things and um yeah he just really came across sincere to me on twitter which sounds like maybe a low bar but on twitter like everyone is constantly posturing and signaling and it's really difficult to determine, you know, like, how genuine a relationship is. And, yeah, so I, I just, I felt like when I engaged with him that I was engaging with a real person, which is, <laughs> should not be as rare as it, as it may seem sometimes online. But, um, anyway, um, yeah, Oliver, he's a graduate student working toward his Ph.D. in philosophy at Notre Dame. Um, he's a writing fellow at the Heterodox Academy and a columnist at Arc Digital. Uh, Most of his content revolves around analyzing culture war discourse. Um, He's written about popular subjects like cancel culture and groups like the intellectual dark web or the new leftist movement online. And um, he really emphasizes uh, the philosophy of language in his work, I would say. And uh, we get into all all that in our conversation to some degree. I mean, it really went all over the place, but it primarily revolved around navigating relationships in the discourse online, um, which... If you're unfamiliar, it's like a colloquial term for spaces on platforms like YouTube and Reddit and Twitter where people just talk politics and culture and argue about everything, and everyone's mad all the time, and it's just uh, it's great times. Um, but Anyway, um, this is a really great conversation, and uh, I got links to Oliver's work in the show notes, so give him a follow if you're into it, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening. So now let's get into what's really good. Oliver, thanks for coming on the, the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Before we jump into anything, just to kind of set the table for people watching or, or listening, can you just get into, I guess, just how you got into the discourse and how you, or when you got into the discourse as well, and maybe uh, a little bit about your recent interests and what you've been up to lately?
1: Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. I mean, my, my entry into the discourse was very gradual. like Like some other writers, I was somebody who my whole life I've basically like commented on internet message boards and things like that. Um, you know, kind of been like a, a troll. To Did some you have a extent. favorite growing up? A favorite message like a board? Growing yeah, right up. Again. The first, this isn't, wasn't a message board, but the first place that I ever argued about like religion and politics online was the internet chess club. Okay. So it was, I would, you would go there to play chess, but then it had a religion channel and a politics channel. And I found myself, and I was like 10 years old, and I was arguing with like 50-year-olds. Um, but it wasn't weird because it's also like, you're also like a 10-year-old playing chess, playing chess against 50-year-olds. So it didn't seem weird to me, but it started to seem weird to them. Was that around
0: like the new atheist movement? Was there like a kind of convergence there? Yeah,
1: I think maybe I was like an early new atheist. I mean, I was I was raised atheist. Mm-hmm. So yeah, basically, it, when, I would, when I was like maybe 10 or 12 years old, I was very certain that like you know, atheist epistemology was correct and would would contravene any religious claim or anything like that. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know if I necessarily abandoned those beliefs explicitly. Um, I guess sometimes you, you don't know if you were actually convinced that one of your beliefs are, is wrong or if you kind of like got gotten tired of it to a certain extent. Right. It's just like, I don't really want to be that person anymore. You beat it up
0: in your head. You're like, yeah, man, I, I'm starting to sound annoying to myself. Yeah,
1: I just <laughs> want to try, you know, to an extent. And this is something, you know, This is something that I worry about about myself because it's something I'm speaking of my entry into the recent discourse, right? I started out very much with the mindset that like all this woke stuff, all this social justice stuff is very much just like people, it's like a kind of fashion and it's people believing things in order to kind of see themselves in a certain way, to kind of garb themselves in a certain way. You know, then you reflect for a minute or two, which could take a minute or two or could take a year for that process, um, as it did for me. And you realize that, like, actually, like, to a certain extent, like, the anti-woke stuff is also kind of a certain kind of garb, right? It feels nice to be a heretic, you know, it feels nice to be edgy and things like that. And so basically, in my own beliefs, I don't know which ones I have because I was convinced of them and which ones I have because they seemed like, you know, the next next fashionable thing or the, the next iteration of my personality or something like that.
0: Well, it's tricky because it's like just based on your writing and and how I've always been following you for maybe a year or so. But I I kind of I gather we have a, a similar impulse. I don't want to say it's like a core tenet of our 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 thinking or anything like that. But it's definitely I, I gather that you have a more contrarian mindset, like just na- like temperamentally, and and I do too. So like growing up, I grew up more in a religious household, religious community. And i rebelled in like when i was like 14 for the first time and i was yeah. like, i started going through the whole like not necessarily this is all bs but started to deconstruct it like this sort of format of, of religion is, is bs and questioning all that and it, and it had a not a similar path to you per se but like similar impulses where then along the way i started to pick up on these trends where it was like get into new atheism and then catch a moment where i'm like man is this all just an aesthetic like do people do we actually believe these things same with social justice. It's like, right. Most is like, man, is this an aesthetic or like, what, what is the underlying belief here? And it's like the, it's like, an, it was like a knee jerk for me, at least it's a knee jerk right. feeling where I'm like, I see people posture online or I see people kind of like set out a premise and then work backwards essentially from, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's kind of like they, they, they reverse engineer a lot of their beliefs and, that's always bothered me, but maybe in part due to my own projection, I guess I've always done that to a certain extent growing up as well. So that's just me, but is, is that something like you feel like at that contrarian level? Like, is it, is it more of an impulse? And then you kind of work through the impulse or.
1: Yeah, I think I definitely feel the impulse and I definitely, sometimes I work through the impulse and sometimes I give into it. Like you know, just being real. <laughs> about like myself, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One example is, um, well, okay. I can tell more about, I can put this story in the context of more about like how I got into this discourse specifically. So the first public writing I ever did um, was on a web magazine called Quillette, which is like the centerpiece really of what's now called the intellectual dark web. This was in 2017. So it was maybe a year before this name came out, but it has been a place where, you know, no idea is off limits. We don't want to, we don't want to, we're not going to censor anything. We don't want to give into social justice dogmas. And in fact, a lot of our writing is going to be against social justice dogmas. Um, and at kind of a variety of levels of edginess, right? Um, Yeah, because they all, even from,
0: I I don't want to say the get-go, but they also had a lot of um, like leftist critiques of social justice as well.
1: Yeah, so I think Quillette is a site that, yeah, like you said, maybe not from the get-go, but um, once they realized or, or started to maybe like intellectually appreciate that those critiques were available, I think basically, and this is something I've written about too, Basically, everybody in the intellectual dark web, I think at a certain point was like, it would be great to have some of like the anti-woke Marxists and, um, you know, the Adolf Reed types, like the materialists right. who think that, you know, who think that wokeness is just kind of symbolic, apolitical, woke capital pandering or whatever. I think at a certain point, basically everybody in the anti-woke sphere realized that it would be good to integrate this perspective in. Um, and they've had varying levels of success, right? Even anti-woke leftists often don't want to be like tarred with the brush of like, oh, you published in this place, they also published this thing that's racist or sexist kind of thing. Right. So I wrote, the first thing I wrote for them was basically a defense of um, this philosopher, Rebecca Tuvel, who in 2017 had published in a feminist philosophy journal, Hypatia, um, an argument that basically went like, um, you know, first premise is um, we should respect the identities of transgender people. Second premise is like in all the relevant – in all the like morally relevant respects transracial identity this was in like during the rachel dole all all right, right right transracial identity is morally similar to transgender identity with the conclusion being we should also respect uh the identities of transracial people people who think they're of a different race and this um i don't know exactly why to be honest so this got both transgender people and transgender philosophers and black philosophers a bit angry although Mostly Black non-philosophers, actually. Um, Black philosophers, I think, were generally rather respectful of it. Some people thought that she was kind of like cleverly trying to make an argument against what what we call a a, a reductio ad absurdum. Uh, an argument against transgender identity, which is what she not what she was going to try do. One of those things, like when you um, see
0: this pieced out in like a Twitter snapshot, everyone just dunks on it without any like initial- it, Exactly. It's just on its face value. You're like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I don't want to engage with this.
1: But that's the the funny thing about, the funny thing is that it was done by philosophers, right? What we do in philosophy, like how many ridiculous ideas are there in all, philosophy? It's all but thought then, experiments. Yeah, exactly. It's all thought experiments and silly ideas. And, you know, there's there's like a- there's a famous philosopher now, one of the one of the kind of top people in philosophical metaphysics and analytic metaphysics believes that only one thing exists. You know, just like the whole world exists and it can't be subdivided or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, and some people there are philosophers who think there's no such thing as right and wrong. So there's, you know, there's all sorts of all sorts of philosophical ideas. And you know, the point of philosophy is to kind of to take them seriously. And if they seem ridiculous, you kind of feel you're supposed to feel the pressure to come up with an argument against right, them. Right, What happened with Juvelle's article was very odd because people were like, here's the obvious counter argument. And it was like something that she had addressed, you know, like all, all the, all the counter arguments people came up with with things she had addressed in the paper. Anyway. So I wrote all this stuff in an article in 2017, which was a little bit more aggressive than my, my articles these days are like pretty, I try to be quite, um, uh, a friend of mine is always calling me measured, which I don't know if I want to be measured exactly. Um, you add a lot of caveats. You hedge your bets. Yeah I, yeah, I I like to have disclaimers and I like to do things at a kind of level of remove where it's like, if you accept this, then you should accept this. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you exactly what to accept. I'm going to tell you more about the implications of the things that you probably already accept. Right. Um, which is, again, you know, the sort of thing that philosophers uh, like to do a lot. So that was how I got into this discourse. I wrote this thing for Quillette. I had terrible writer's block for most of my life. Um, I had uh, spent a year in law school and dropped out. And then I did a master's program and it took like years to finish my papers. Um, and the thing that was addictive about writing this article and other articles for Colette was just seeing the normal like social media stuff, right? Seeing the, the likes come in and the shares from famous people, the dopamine, you know. It's addictive. It's incredibly addictive. Um, you get you, Your followers go up. You know people talk to you who it's like, "Why has this person even heard of me? let alone they're seeking me out right um, and um and that's also the crazy thing about Twitter, right? and to a lesser extent Facebook, but um it's just like everybody's everybody's there for whatever reason, maybe we shouldn't be, maybe it's a horrible place. Maybe I have started trying to set a time limit so that I only use Twitter like fifteen minutes a day. maybe, maybe I always raise that time limit and always end up using it much more than that unfortunately, um good call. But, but with regards to the contrarianism thing, um, well, the funny thing was, so of course, writing for Quella, I feel like I'm just, I am the contrarian, right? You're automatically
0: fighting, there. In a yeah, way. exactly.
1: We're fighting against the, the social justice orthodoxy, right? We're fighting against the woke mob, whatever you want to call it, the politically correct. Right. Which to
0: be clear, group. I just want to kind of yeah. maybe, maybe preface this for people watching or listening um, may, that may be coming from, I don't know, like a lens, let's say a more left-leaning lens mm-hmm. who, who might hear something like that and think, well, what do you mean? Like the orthodoxy, right. like culturally has always been more at a conservative bend or, mm. or what have you. And I think it is important to kind of uh, frame this in a way where like, especially from like 2013 to 15, 16-ish, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the sort of cultural norms in the online culture war space really did become dominated by the more social justice left mm. um, space, whatever whatever we want to call it, And um, all the critiques of that up to, I guess, the point you're mentioning, like around Quillette, all Mm -hmm. the critiques up to that point were from essentially far right sources. So it's like there wasn't really a culture war dialogue going on. It was more like there wasn't really a center. It was more like the social justice left kind of emerged through Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. new waves of feminism, Gamergate, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then the, the whiplash to that was like far right. And then there became this kind of ping pong effect where it was like, each side was like, no, you started it type of thing. And right. um, Quillette slash the IDW for all its failings, in my view, kind of like attempted to curate a space that was like a liberal center left-ish critique of these things without being completely reactionary. Although many would say it had reactionary elements from the onset. Yeah. But but of course, it's that's that's more the, the space that you're occupying just to kind of lay out. Yeah. And
1: also, just to be clear, I always, you know, usually if I say something like woke mob, people who don't know me will not know this, I guess. And probably most people, it's not like many people know me. So most people watching this won't know me. Usually when I say a phrase like woke mob, I'm just doing it in at least a little bit of a self-mocking way. Right. Because because there is there is an element of. And again, this is something that I've realized over the years. There is an element of taking oneself a little bit too seriously, kind of catastrophizing about being attacked online and things like that. That's always been present in the backlash against, um, you know, internet social justice dynamics against what was called, nobody really uses this phrase anymore, but, you know, five years ago, everybody was very concerned about call out culture.
0: Yep. yep, Oh yeah. People um, kind of called it outrage culture too. In yeah. A way. And oh. now
1: I think, I think call out culture was a term A bit more for kind of like the internal dynamics of left-leaning spaces online. So outrage culture, I guess, was just people getting angry. And now cancel culture is for when there's like, when there can actually be like real world repercussions. Because now, to the extent that there is an orthodoxy, I think part of it has come from this thing of like, corporations do care, right? Like there's this old video that that I I remember from my very, very early days on Twitter. I'm not going to say all the content of it because it was horribly offensive, but the joke of it was it was this this young woman who like i said wrote some horribly offensive things racially offensive things on twitter and changed her bio to say i'm i'm a barista at xyz coffee shop in like abc location right mm-hmm. um and so she said these terrible racist things and changed her picture to a, a picture of somebody else and like photoshopped a a trump oh, hat wow. on them wow. and what she did was she did a video of watching all the people tagging this coffee shop that she had claimed to work at. And it was like hundreds of people tagging this place that she had said that she worked at as a joke. And, but she would have been, I think she gen- genuinely would have been fired. Um, and I think that that's why people call it cancel culture, right? Because you can, you can have genuine material losses from posting something online um, that's offensive. Right. Um and that I think some people say there's no such thing as cancel culture, but that it just seems obviously true that that thing can happen. Right. And I think that's just, that's the only, that's all that people mean by cancel culture. They don't, they don't really mean anything much more elaborate than that. Well,
0: people get caught um, up in the, the, the language and how yeah yeah and you know, maybe exploited by again, like Fox news or, or what have you. Right. And then it kind of loses a lot of its, its meanings. Like I always, I think about it in terms of what you just said as an example. I mean, I think about it, like if there is, there's a thousand people and those thousand people work at a hundred different businesses and they're tweeting 10 times a day. And within those things, it's politicized cultural war type stuff. Of course, like probably 80, 90, 95, maybe even 99% of those those tweets and those people, they're never gonna get in trouble. Their employer's never gonna yeah. care. It's never gonna go anywhere. But it's more so the The looming threat that like Mm. you as an individual, like you might tweet something and then that tweet will have repercussions, if not in the moment, five, 10 years down the road. That is the sort of uh, feared thing, like whatever you call it, that leads people to become either self-censoring or fearful of, 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 of of these repercussions in a way where it's not so much like, I'm going to tweet this opinion and then I'm going to get canceled for it. Like you probably won't, but it's just the, the looming threat. Yeah. The
1: possibility. And you know, it's also, it's not like there's any, it's very unpredictable. It, when somebody decides to make you famous, it's very unpredictable what's going to happen. Right. right. It's not like there are ground rules about it. No one decides and, to
0: be the main character of a uh, Twitter. Yeah, exactly.
1: So the funny, I, I still had to say, <laughs> I'm saying too much about too many things. So the whole, the only reason I brought up Quillette was to talk about this contrarianism thing that we were talking about. Um, so, and I still like Quillette. I read Quillette a lot. I like Claire the editor a lot. I like uh, you know Jamie the other editor a lot and, and the other people associated with Quillette. In January of 2019, I went to a Quillette meetup in Toronto, a kind of event. I don't know what, it was like a dinner, I don't know what to call it. It was like a fundraising event. A mixer
0: type of thing? Um, yeah,
1: like a kind of mixer. Mm-hmm. Um, my cousin lived in Toronto, so I was going to see him too. So it was convenient. The funny thing about my contrarianism is like, I get to this thing and everybody there is like a Quillette person, right? And um, suddenly I just don't want to be a Quillette person anymore, yeah. right? And suddenly <laughs> everybody, there's, and again, nothing against them. This is what always happens in this kind of mixer, right? The dynamic got a little bit self-congratulatory. People started saying, "We're we're all very brave. We're all very this, we're all very that. And suddenly I just like, you know, I was like, I I want to be against these people now for as long as I'm here. And I think that's kind of the shape of my contrarianism, right? Like I can't, for whatever reason, you put me in a group. Once the group starts to do something, I'm like against it, right? Once the group starts to coalesce around something, I just feel that I have to be the counterweight. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's obviously in a lot of ways irrational um, at the individual level. Um, It's irrational just because you happen to be a room in a room of the the 50 people who believe this thing to suddenly decide that it's now the majority believe. Um, but it's just kind of the way that I'm built. Once, and if I'm in a group that's, yeah, that's coalescing around a certain viewpoint, I'm going to look for the, the, the counter argument or even, you know, less respectably, just like the way to make fun of it. Right. Right. Um, and that's kind of, that's the way that my, the my contrarianism works. And there's basically no, any group that I feel that I'm perceived as being a part of, I think, I'm gonna feel that urge. Um, so maybe it's really like a, I think it's a very juvenile thing that I have, right? It's like very much like, don't label me, you know, like I'm I'm too cool to be like anybody else. I'm too much of an individual, you know, things like that. Well, it kind of depends um, on how you utilize it, right? Because
0: I think yeah. I I relate to you completely in this way. And I think um, just the other night, I had, I had a friend over who I don't see too often and we were just chat, long time friend. Like I've known this person for over 15 years. Mm-hmm. And um, we were just chatting about whatever. And they kind of, and I I haven't seen this person in a long time. We don't, we, we live close to her. We don't hang out too often. Um, And they brought up this example of something that a friend of theirs had said, Mm -hmm. and it just made no sense to me at (laughs) all. Like, like logically there was just no sense behind it at all. There wasn't like a, there's two sides to this thing. It just felt completely inconsistent at just the fundamental level, but they they said it in a kind of nonchalant, like I, this is just how it is type of thing. And I just started like poking at it and being mm-hmm. like, you know, what do you mean by this? And like, what's an example of this? And mm-hmm. wouldn't you say like this over here kind of contradicts that? And we started talking through it. And as we're going through it, like 10 minutes pass, and then 20 minutes pass, and it starts to heat up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And um, I noticed like they're starting to get uncomfortable. And then I'm starting to get uncomfortable because I'm like, shit, I didn't mean to make them uncomfortable. Like right. my, my goal in this was like, I wanted to tease out. I'm like, I'm not even arguing because this thing matters, really. Mm. I'm more, so just honestly trying to figure out like what is their thought process? Right, yeah. Like when it's gonna break down and they weren't cracking. So I was Mm. like, it felt really, it didn't feel right to just let it go and be like, I'm over this. Cause they just, like I said, it wasn't a type of thing where you can just be like, well, on this side, we believe this. It wasn't like a moral judgment type of thing. Mm anyway so afterward you know you know we hugged it out like he, he even brought up to me he was like you know do you do this for fun often <laughs> i like don't talk to him as much anymore i'm like yeah you know like i'm online all the time like it's yeah yeah it's what we unhealthy. do online yeah yeah and like it got it really got me reflecting after where i was like man like i was i was a total asshole and like i didn't think in the moment that mm-hmm. i was coming across like an asshole it just um it hit me afterwards i was like man most people in like regular life whatever just aren't they don't want to do that they aren't accustomed to no. doing that but in what you do particularly like both in academia and then in the sort of online culture workspace there is a sort of place for that I think like we said before the thought experiment example like where you can test out tease yeah. out some of these like boundaries you know when, when you do come across a new group think it's like what is the what is the best critique of this group think and kind of break it down and then for me at least personally sometimes I'll break that down and then get to the bottom and be like okay well i still believe this or like i'm comfortable right, yeah. associating with people like this or whatever and then that is what it is but in the moment i think that exercise can be beneficial or it can make you look like an asshole just depending on who's watching or who you're around you know
1: yeah so it's completely true that in my academic work you know what i was going to say early on when you were describing this interaction i, I was thinking basically like this is why they killed Socrates, right? Like, <laughs> you know, he, he was just so annoying to people because he just kept poking at people would yeah. say like, Oh, you should do this. It's the pious thing to do. And then he would be like, well, what do you mean by pious? And then he'd be like, <laughs> rah, rah, rah. I think that there's, there are a few things that I try to remember that kind of um, moderate this urge in me or a few things that I try to do. So one thing is like the, just the, You know, over thousands of years of trying to be true to what Socrates was looking for in the way that we use language, like we've never been successful, right? Right. Um, And one of my recent pieces about defining critical race theory is basically along these lines. This is basically, so Ludwig Wittgenstein is a philosopher who's basically known for emphasizing this exact point, right? There's almost no concept that we use that we can really give a completely rigorous definition of. Concept in, in mathematics are stipulated, so we can do that for mathematics. But think about even like the you know is a is a hot dog a sandwich kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, everybody can competently use the 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 phrases hot dog, the, the phrase hot dog, and the word sandwich, right? Um, but somehow being a competent user of English doesn't necessitate a conclusion on whether a hot dog is a sandwich, right? So I think there's there's a point at which you, you have to you have to make sure that you're not asking for too much from somebody. You know, one place where it's important is, um, so, for example, in the critical race theory legislation, of course, it makes complete sense to be like, will this legislation make this thing illegal or not? Right. Right. That's just a question. You have to know that to know whether you want to support the law, right? Because you have to know the, what the effects of the law is going to be. So there are places where you, you really do have to get to the bottom of a definition. But there are other places where you can kind of be like, OK, that's a little fuzzy, but it's, I get the thrust of it, right? I get what it's kind of about. I get what you relate to this definition. Like
0: terms like grifter or weaponized or just uh-huh. kind of these these amorphous terms that yeah. you, know, you can understand usually what someone means. But at the same time, you often if you want to be specific, you do have to pin down uh, what the specific person means because, you know, it's kind of taking on a life of its own. But the consequences yeah. aren't like that big where you're like, I demand like a succinct meaning in this moment.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, grifter and weaponized are both terms that I have that I have made some hay out of. Um, Getting angry about, I think to <laughs> me the thing about grifter and weaponize that irks me. This I think is a very common feature, and our side does it too. Every, everybody does this in online politics, and basically any any politics that is expressed through language, which all politics is. Grifter and weaponize are, are, are like it's always the other side that's doing them, right? Like so, there's the sense in which the sense in which the terms are ill defined is just that you never you never apply them to your friends, right? You only ever apply them to your enemies. It, it, you know, nobody would ever, the thing that I always say on Twitter is like, I, people, I'm a grifter for like making 50 bucks writing some freelance article. <laughs> but then, you know, when the person who disagrees with me and I get into a fight with on Twitter makes like $600,000 with a MacArthur Genius Grant Somehow that doesn't make them a grifter, right? It right. makes them a genius. So I make 50 bucks, I'm a grifter. They make $600,000. Yeah, a genius, people right? are always
0: fuzzy with the Patreon, yeah. Substack type stuff. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, who gets to be a grifter, who gets to be a genius um, is determined by who you think, which positions you think could be honestly expressed by a smart person, right? In a way, I take it as a compliment because. In some cases, I think the grifter accusation is something like, I know you're a smart person. No smart person could possibly believe the things that you're saying. So you must be only pretending to believe them in order to make money. Right. Um, So maybe I shouldn't tell people that I don't make that much money because then maybe they'll just think that I'm stupid. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of diversity in words and there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways to um, attack uh, different different word usages
0: um it's tough when you're like you have to rely so much in this internet culture war space on intent and you it's really difficult to measure that through predominantly like predominantly text-based media yeah yeah like twitter or even you know in writing i mean that's that's hard enough you can obviously expand more but twitter is just so difficult to really get a grip on what someone believes I mean, i'll often yeah sometimes i follow um like youtuber or twitch streamer political mm-hmm. drama and stuff like that it's, it's just like funny it's almost like a joe rogan podcast to me it's just like background noise that i don't really pay mm-hmm. too much attention to but enough to be like a lot of times they all, they'll break down like a, a take that they had on twitter or whatever oh. and a take is intentionally inflammatory or you know kind of um yeah, it's just it's meant to, to rile people up or, right. or 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 at least rile their own fan base up. And um, then later on, you know, once it's uh, determined that that take was either incorrect or misleading or what have you. Mm-hmm. And they, they t- you know, take it back and be like, oh, I didn't, you know, have all the information. Or I didn't like. Understand. Yeah. Yeah. And you're kind of like, well, wait, like, did you. Do this just for the attention or whatever, or really like? Were you conscious? Was it aware? a
1: mistake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: because that, and it, and it's all measuring intent and depend. Like you're saying, depending on if you
1: like that person or you dislike, right? Yeah, so well, much. Yeah, get the generous interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think this is a constant. And of course, I don't know if you've had this, but I have this actually more outside of. I have this more in my kind of close relationships in my life, which you know, of course, are often text, you know, a lot of texting, a lot of chatting with my family members and, you know, and, and, you know, women in my life and things like that. I have an ex who would always, whenever she wanted to have a long phone call in the evening, um, she would text me, can we talk tonight? Which I always took as like, it's just like, you just feel a dread, right? Like the, can we talk? It means like, you know, there's something important, probably she's going to break up with me. Right. And um, over text, you know, If you can't see somebody's facial expression, if you can't see their body language, things like that, it's very hard to, you know, even somebody, I'm not very good at like assessing, you know, I'm not a very socially adept person. I'm not good at assessing people's mood from their body language or anything like that. But even for me, um, not having that makes things a lot harder. And I think it probably is true on political Twitter as well. Um, I have no idea how I come across really on Sometimes I read my tweets and I'm like, well, that's, it seems like really serious the way that I wrote it, you know, but like mostly you can tell from talking to me, I don't really take the things I say that seriously. I just kind of say, you know, here's my take, you know, I, I'm trying my best, you know, this seems like the good argument to me in the moment, if it's wrong, I'll just like say that it's wrong, whatever, but it's hard to really like, you know, how do you, how do you express that and still kind of maintain your, your position as a commentator you're one without, thing you know not coming across like you're yeah exactly or like you're unsure of yourself or exactly or yeah so um I, yeah it's very hard to figure out how to how to put things in text in a way that reflects the actual like mood that you have about them and the actual level of commitment that you have about them i often wish you know there are a lot of people on twitter who well let's say this there are certain there's a certain amount of people on twitter who really don't like me and there's a subset of those people but certainly not the entire set of those people There is a subset of those people who I wish, in fact, did like me and did not dislike me. Hmm. Um, And I often do wonder, like, wouldn't it be nice to, like, actually meet them, show them that I kind of like a teddy bear, you know, deep down. But then there's also this thing of, like, you know, when, when I see it with other people, I think Freddie DeBoer has written about this. You know, he writes about being attacked by media people online and then meeting them in person, and they're just, like, super friendly. Hey, what's up? Yeah, hey, yeah. like, how you doing? Yeah. Freddie, I know you from the Twitter. And then they go back on Twitter, and they're attacking yep. them again, right? Seen a thousand uh, times, yep. Yeah, and it's, like, at that point, you have to ask, like, who is the – and this is, you know, for somebody who grew up with the internet, which I did, and it sounds like you did to an extent mm-hmm. as well, um, you always have this worry. Like, which is the – which is the, you know, it's very Baudrillardy, and it's very much the matrix, right? Like, which is the real – me, Yep. am I in person, like doing an act and then I become my real self on Twitter or or am I doing an act on Twitter and then my, my real per- self in person? Um, and you have to wonder about it, about these people who are really vicious online. And then you hear, we have it so much in philosophy. They say, oh, just go to a conference with them. They'll be so nice. Um, they're so sweet. And then on the internet, it's just like, this person should not be allowed to speak. This person should not be allowed to speak. This person is an idiot. Right. This person is cruel. You know, This person is racist, blah, blah, blah.
0: In a lot of ways, that's the real grift because I mean, and you see it in journalism a lot too, I think, where you know, journalists, you know, they're all there's a lot of these um <clears throat> small com- like niche communities, and then there's the kind of macro communities that like you know in DC or New York or whatever, where a lot of these like writers, you know, the kind of <clears throat> mesh between pop culture, um, tabloid style writers and like, you know, the the more prestigious journalist style writers or for like the New York Times or whatever. Um, a lot of these people, you know, they form clicks and they know each other. And they also like, not even just like with other journalists, but other people, whether it's in PR or Mm. like, or various businesses that they work with or can get sources from or platforms, even people that work for Twitter or or et cetera. It's a difficult thing to see because like you're saying, like a lot of these people, like they're super nice. Like you see them, whether it's at conferences, interviews, et cetera, Mm. and, um, very amicable. But then like you're saying, they'll jump right on Twitter and it's like they start firing shots off. And I think in large part, I think for some of them, like I know, I know several journalists in this space and I, I really do think that they have good intentions for what it's worth. And I think the, the, the sort of steel man, whatever you want to say of it, is that these are people who they understand the space, like you mentioned, like they grew up in internet culture. They understand mm-hmm. that it's almost like a game, you know, when you're right. on these platforms and that When you're in real life, it's like, okay, the game kind of like dissipates a bit and we have to be human again. But once we're back on the game, you know, it's kind of all all things go. And um, yeah, it's like
1: World of Warcraft, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's like kind of LARPy almost. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I understand it at a certain level in certain si- situations, but then there's other levels, like I think you're alluding to, at like a relational level, where you mm-hmm. feel like I'm trying to develop a friendship or like you know, yeah. something, something that I I can stretch beyond. You know, we're just we DM on Twitter sometimes, and I can trust you with information or what what have you, and that's really tough to do. And yeah, um like uh, one of the questions I, I really wanted to ask you and this, this is maybe like a broad topic but being someone you know i think i reached out to you again maybe i forget when it was like a year ago or something like that you were among a sort of like loose sphere of people um from across the political spectrum like leftist social mm-hmm. justice oriented people liberals some even center-right libertarian uh minded people who i looked at relationally and i was like you know like I can. It, it, it's all intuition at the end of the day, but like intuitively, right. I'm I'm gauging that this is a person who's acting in good faith. They seem like a real human. They're not like trying to just game the system with hot takes and and, and whatnot. Um, it's a person like worth engaging with. And I I've noticed since then, obviously, like you you mentioned this earlier, that you often will deactivate your account and like you often I I noticed do try really hard if you encounter a critique you'll try to couch a response with like using more exclamation points and, 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 and language in a way that kind of presents yourself like, like, listen, I'm not mad or I'm not like i I'm not like taking this super seriously. And I think that those are all signs to me of someone who does care and like is invested in in their work in an honest way. So I guess like knowing how you've navigated these, these different um, ideological groups over the years and how like you mentioned, like there's people you wish you were friends with that don't like you, and then there's like all these different how, how we refer to as tribal identities or whatever that you have to kind of navigate like how do you how do you work through that space at on a relational level with these people as you kind of build into friendships and colleagues and and discovering who are my enemies like how do you how do you think about that or work through that on a daily basis
1: yeah i mean i find I think part of why I deactivated a lot is because I do find it kind of overwhelming i mean I think part of it thank you for all the things he said. It was very complimentary. I think I would probably say it in a different way. That's a little less complimentary to myself. <laughs> it's kind of will. more just about like what capacities I have and um, like what capacities I lack. So I don't know if you were like this, but I was one of those kids who like, maybe it took me a little longer than other people to realize that like, when somebody asks, how are you, they don't actually write. Like they don't actually yeah, care. Like like, it's like small talk thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, So I have this like slightly socially awkward thing of just like not understanding the, that, that like the, that a lot of relationality is kind of just performative is not like sincere and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And this goes, it goes for some of the negative stuff on Twitter and some of the positive stuff online, but it also goes uh, offline, but it also goes for some of the positive stuff on Twitter, right? Like um, you know, when some journalist switch switches from one job to another, you see just like hundreds of blue checks just being like, congratulations, congratulations. Right? Like you don't know, I'm sure that these people don't know each other, right? Like they, you don't have this many people. Um, but they're all so loosely all,
0: associated. Yeah, with it's, like it's, it's these very loose
1: associations yeah. and probably some of it is kind of like advantage seeking by, by trying to form the connection in this kind of like vulnerable yep. moment or something. And I'm just very bad about thinking about relationships um, strategically in that way i just kind of like will we'll talk to whoever and um basically can't do much other than like saying how i actually feel about things and that will run like in
0: terms of a platform like twitter where so much of the the culture is built on optics and rhetoric yeah, yeah. and just like and like we were mentioning earlier just a st- i mean i hate to say it because like when you say aesthetics it, it implies like A lot of disingenuine you know nature to people individually and like i don't i I don't know like i I don't know if i would call it disingenuine per se but like there's definitely something to be said i mean culturally like this is just what people do i mean when there's cultural trends people hop on those trends and it's not to say they don't actually believe those things but like they exhibit attitudes that are just like what what their friends are exhibiting and what and what their colleagues are exhibiting and it just becomes like A second nature thing, where I was like, I understand what you're saying. You're not consciously thinking about how to engage with those topics. Like when you see one of these topics come through, you're just like, hmm. Like you kind of like do a second take and then you think it through. Whereas like most people, when they see a take that they know their sort of group identity or their family or personal experience, whatever, tells them this is good or bad. It's a very easy switch for them. Whereas like we were saying, it's like more difficult to, to understand how other people do that, because you don't see it that way.
1: Yeah, I think in general, the belief is genuine. I don't really know another way to parse it. In general, in these group situations, the belief is genuine. In a way, like often the virtue signaling accusation, it's a lot like the grifter accusation, right? And at the same time, I do believe that grifting and virtue signaling, are both like things that happen. It's just like, there's there's no real route to having good evidence for it in an individual case. And the accusation is never productive.
0: It's like the difference Um, between, I I was just talking to a friend about this the other day. It's a difference between, you know, saying I support LGBTQ people mm -hmm. in the context of something specific, like something happens in the news, you're commenting on that thing, or like something happens with your friend, you're defending your friend, et cetera, versus like there's not really an occasion or maybe but not a specific occasion and you're just throwing it out there. Like I need attention right now, Mm -hmm. or there's a cultural broader cultural movement, a zeitgeist, and you want to hop into the zeitgeist and get clout from that. And then even then you don't know if the person's intentions are disingenuous. All you know is that like, it feels to me like there's a probability that there might be more of like, you just kind of hopped on this thing, but like you're saying, levying that accusation almost feels fruitless because you just, you just have no idea.
1: And it's also like, you know, it's not like if you see somebody say, I support LGBTQ people, you think, oh, you probably don't actually support them. Exactly. It's more like, well, you're using that, you know, you're saying that in this moment to gain some kind of advantage, but that kind of advantage, like saying something in the right moment because you believe it, that is like not hard. You know, like everybody picks the right moments to say the thing, right? Like yeah. if you think a woman is beautiful, you, you like wait for the right moment to tell it, right? Or like, if I have a take about something, I try to put it in the right magazine or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that, that just the fact that people are saying it at a time when it's advantageous to them is not, not to me, that's not enough to yeah, it. Cause we all do it. Signaling. Cause it's, yeah. it's, you know, you can't just say everything you think all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that, that I don't think is that, I think I can definitely parse. Um, but you were talking about the difficulty of these relationships at the individual level. It's, it's something that I feel a lot. Um, I kind of, this is like a big I don't want to say contradiction exactly, but a kind of tension in my personality uh, that I do really want most people to like me, um, most people that I interact with. And then I have that contrarian side where I'm like, once a certain number of people like me, I feel a bit hemmed in. By not interested anymore. Yeah, I'm not interested. Yeah, and I feel like the task of, I'm just kind of like all of those people who already like me added together and the task of kind of like, not turning anybody away can't offend anybody yeah exactly it becomes a very difficult task so just like at the moment right like i have strong links with the original idw people i have strong links with this sort of like uh anti-liberal catholic faction i have strong links with some of the uh anti-woke leftists i have strong links with some of the anti-woke philosophers and with some of the anti-anti-woke philosophers Mm -hmm. um You know, I have links with the Heterodox Academy people and I have have links with the much more edgy people who are like Heterodox Academy is just like the controlled opposition or whatever. And to be completely honest, it really does like add together to at certain points where it's just like something happens. And I'm just like, not, not even at the level of like, I can't say what I feel because I'm worried about offending somebody. But it like it becomes very hard to figure out how you feel. Right. Right. Because you kind of have all these voices in your head of all the people you're modeling, um, all the people who you consider close to you. And you, you're trying to, and I often, when I write things, I often think like, here's my specific audience, right? This person is who I'm writing this for. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, I reviewed the F- Cornell philosopher, Kate Mann's book entitled um, back in September or October. Right. Mansplaining. Um, yeah. Mansplaining my, yeah. So I thought I, I wrote in basically a, a, a negative, review of the book with a friend who (laughs) there was a thing because he didn't want to, he didn't want to hurt his career in philosophy. So he stayed anonymous. Um, it was his idea to write the review. So it was funny because a lot of people were like, Oh, this, it shouldn't be allowed to like be anonymous or something. And I was like, why should it be allowed? (laughs) Um, it's kind of weird. So that review I specifically wrote with another grad student in mind who I knew was – is a very woke grad student but is also more of like a Bernie socialist type to a degree mm-hmm. and is very anti Kate Mann because she's very – she was like very much on the anti-Bernie bro stuff and was mm-hmm. like the Bernie bros are being mean to Liz Warren and mean to Hillary. Right, right, right like that, that whole um, So I basically – the everything I wrote in there, I was thinking of this one particular woman. I was like, I want to – Be able to get her on my side with this with this review because i know that deep down she agrees with me um unfortunately she hated the review so it was very sad um but i often i often the things i write um i'm often like here are the people who probably don't agree with me yet the specific people who i know personally who i would like to come to my side with this and i don't know when there's such a a wide range of people um it's, it is, to me, it's very difficult managing all that. I think there are, there are people who are more socially adept who do it with great fluidity. Um, but for me, I, ne- I need to take time away because it's just a lot of relationships to manage at once.
0: Well, so I think um, some people naturally, for, what, for whatever the reason may be, are just given more grace than other people. Like, uh-huh. heard example I think of is Cornell West. It's like there's tons of people um, who disagree with Cornell West from both the left and the right on various subjects, depending on the interview he's given. Um, but he's given a lot of grace because of his temperament. I mean, he's very mm. friendly. He calls everybody, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, he's right. he's always laughing. He keeps like a, a sort of levity to his style of discourse. And um, in a lot of ways, even though he has in, in, in a lot of ways, radical positions, like he couches them in like really unifying, like moderate language. And I think yeah. um, that's like, that's such a rare, difficult trait. And that's why I think he's so loved and, and, and admired because for people like you or I, and, and I also consider myself someone who try. I don't, I'm not as much of a writer as you. I don't spend as much time in this space. I'm more of an observer for what But worth. I know
1: you well enough to know that you have a variety of, you have a real variety of relationships. Like, right. I, exactly. I that's and that's what sure. I was going
0: to get at. Is that like, I feel the same tension you do where like I have a variety in these relationships and I think, I think to some extent, like what you're describing, it's almost like a healthy projection because it does challenge you internally to be like, yeah. what is the reaction going to be to this thing? How can I plan for that? You know, rhetorically, optically, you know, what's the most optimal um, way to approach this subject? I think that could be really healthy, but to, like, to your point, I mean, it's also incredibly debilitating when you aren't um, like solidified in your own um, ideology, which people right. like you and I maybe aren't like, maybe I would say maybe pre- we can get into this. If you, if you'd mm-hmm. like, um, I'd say maybe I am a little more than you, like I'm pretty comfortable self-identifying as things like progressive or social mm-hmm. democratic, et cetera. But, um, I, I still handle my public image whatever you're to call it. And even like right. my personal relationships at an optics level where I, over, I've been, I've been engaging the discourse for, seven, eight years at this Mm -hmm. point. Like I've learned over that time, I've been a firebrand, you know, I've been the contrarian, I've been the moderate, you know, I've Mm -hmm. played these characters and you find over time, you know, what is the most optimal approach for someone like me. And for me, like I I do try to, to moderate a lot of my language, even if I am expressing a specific ideological viewpoint, because I've found that in doing that, I do get a lot of people on my opposition who are comfortable reaching out to me especially privately to to talk about it and i and without that i I lose that and i'm not really like we were saying earlier i'm not someone interested in building a following that i can kind of like put out a tweet then it instantly gets a hundred likes and we all agree and it's all great i'm more interested in figuring out like how do i say things that aren't quite being said this way you know what's what's a new thought even if it's a little provoking um but it's difficult to it's really difficult to navigate that when you don't have like a Specific grounding in any ideology or group, and you're trying to like spin between several of them, like it sounds like you are.
1: Yeah, I think it does make it difficult. And the interesting thing to me is like the sign that it's still difficult is a sign that the whole like groupthink, virtue signaling type analysis is like it's not quite complete, right? Because you still feel, even if you're not a member of like a well defined group, you still feel social pressures because humans are social animals, right? And maybe. I experience my, the social is more as like projections of individual people that I know rather than some like, you know, general group consensus of a group that I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's basically the same thing. I think somebody <laughs> in philosophy, Twitter, another grad student, um, a couple months ago, there was this thing where somebody disagreed with me about something and then somebody else screenshotted it and a bunch of people, you know, were insulting me over it. And one of them, one of these people said something like, like oliver presents himself as like so objective and like free from bias and like free from social blah blah or whatever i was just so i was so confused by it because i really don't think of myself that way at all right i don't have any self-perception i, I know that there are people in the idw who have like said that they are right they there there are people who have discord yeah they have said like, like i now that i'm now that i left the left i can think for myself or whatever right. but like I don't really have a, like, I try to think to my, for myself to the extent that I'm able, um, and I try to be free of social pressures because I have a kind of, like, German romanticism ideal of, like, the authentic, you know, I'm, like, the authentic artist of my belief, you know, like, I'm, you know, like, Goethe yeah. or somebody like that, you know, I have to be free and, like, express my soul or whatever, but it's not like when it, when push comes to shove, I think of myself as being independent from all the social influences in my life or from the various like incentives there are some incentives to to be conformist and there are some incentives to be contrarian right i more think of myself as somebody who like has tried to balance those in a conscious way who is responsive to being told that he's wrong and things like that and like takes other people's critiques seriously um rather than like I don't think of myself as somebody who like spontaneously generates like auto critiques of my own positions that are, you know, and if right. I didn't come up with my, um, with it myself, then I must be right or anything like that. Um, so I think we're, we're all in this position and I think it's scarier on social media than it is anywhere else. Right. And you're more aware of it on social media. I think to myself, you know, I can probably name most of my followers who have the most followers themselves, right. On Twitter. Like it's just something that is in my mind. Right. And they're all very different people. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's always a danger in high school. You know, I was friends with like a bunch of people in a bunch of the different cliques. Right. I thought of myself as being kind of above cliques. And there was one time where I, I, I tried to have a like a, a birthday party. Sorry, that's my brother's oh, dog. Um, I tried to have she's very small. I tried to have a birthday party where I was just like, oh, I'll just combine like my favorite people from all the different cliques. It's like it didn't go very well. Oh yeah, you know? they're like, disaster! It's, it's yeah. a disaster, right? Um, <laughs> and so I would love to be like, here are the people on Twitter who I think are smart. Let me just put all of them in a room together. But it would never, you know, I think it's very dangerous. Um, I kind of
0: tried that with our one little
1: group chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, I think it, it, it,
0: it was there was some there was some cohesion, but like literally within the first day or a couple of days, there was a, there was on, there was a a pattern. Uh, development where like certain clicks started to kind of dominate the company. Yeah, yeah. And then it, it, obviously, if you're part of another click or you're outside all these clicks or whatever, yeah, yeah. when you're looking through this, you're thinking, "Oh shit!" Like I'm on the outside of this. I don't want to stir stir the pot. Which is, I'm of the, the type of person who wants to stir that pot, but it's right difficult when you're um, when you don't really know the people all that well. Like the, the relational aspect of it really makes it, it difficult to to navigate, I think, because you just don't you don't know. You could say something in that group chat and then suddenly, like you mentioned, you might be getting screenshotted and then sent in another group chat. And you just it, it, there's no like rapport. Um, yeah. those those relationships really develop. And it's it's tough to do that on Twitter.
1: Yeah. That's another thing. You know, my first so when I joined okay, so the first time I was on Twitter was as a completely different kind of account where I was just like friendly with people who I played video games with. Um, I have a hobby where I try to play video games very quickly. Um, I'm not very good at it. Yeah. 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 So I did speedruns at a time and I was on Twitter under that account during the, um, the Hulk Hogan Gawker lawsuit. Oh yeah. And I just, I was so obsessed with this lawsuit when it happened. This was like one of the, you know, it feels like a long time ago now, but Mm -hmm. it was five years ago and I think it was a big and kind of under discussed now as for what it actually was, like a lot of people are like, oh, the death of Gawker, dah, dah, dah. but it was like a, a big battle in the culture wars seen as like between, well, to an extent seen as between like a, a group of journalists who are in part try to victimize like random people and get clicks from it. Um, this is my very anti-Gawker way of putting it. The, the pro-Gawker way of putting it would be, it was a... Uh, You know, there was a tech billionaire, you know, it was tech versus Gawker and the money won, right? Tech versus journalism and the money started to win. And the kind of tech versus journalism narrative, you see it in Taylor Lorenz's reporting on TikTok. You see it in reporting on Reddit and especially reporting on Substack. Um, Anyway, that's a completely different issue. I joined under my real name in late 2016, right before the election, and followed a bunch of journalists and would like respond to them and they wouldn't respond back and things like that. Um, So I was basically like a reply guy for a few months. And then- (laughs) Uh, I started dating this girl who, like, looked for my looked to see on her own if I had a Twitter account and just saw me like arguing with random people, and she said something to me like, "Aren't you worried that like you're like not going to be able to get a job because of this account?" This is before I went back to grad school. Mm. Um, so for about a year and a half, starting then, this was in like spring or like late winter of 2017. I changed to an anonymous account, and let me tell you, being an anonymous account is very, very different from having a name associated with your account. Even though I was never completely anonymous, there would be things that would be published under my real name that I would link to as my own pieces. Mm -hmm. But you can quote tweet whoever you want. You know, they're not, you know, what are they going to do? Quote tweet your anonymous account? You'll just quote tweet them back and you'll be in a fight with a big person, right? And all you can do is gain from it, right? I think, what is it, George Bernard Shaw, who said, um, don't don't wrestle with a pig, you both get muddy and the pig enjoys it or something like that. So I was the pig. Right. You know, when I was anonymous, I was the pig who enjoyed wrestling in the mud with like real people. And that was a lot of fun in a way. In a lot of ways, I think it was more fun than than having a name on Twitter. And, that, you know, a lot of my favorite accounts now are anonymous, not just political ones, but they're, you know, if I had a bad date, what could I tweet about it? Right. Anything I could tweet about a bad date expressing that it was bad, I could just get quote tweeted and called a misogynist or something. Right. So I can never like very few personal things. Right. That, that I can tweet. Right. So, yeah, that dynamic is definitely there. And, yeah, worries about screenshots, worries about – I'm actually much less careful than I should, I think, about what I say in private. Um, I'm on Discord servers where, you know, where we joke around a lot. Um, I'm in a bunch of DM groups where there are, like, some very – you know, usually I'm pretty quiet in them, but I'm in DM groups that have some people who are much more problematic than I am. Right.
0: Yeah, I've been – even just through the brand account that I manage, the Stakem stuff, man, Yeah. Over the years, I have been in every type of group chat you can imagine because yeah. people just add random brands. They just add you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they just, like, I think most times they assume the brand won't respond or isn't looking or whatever, but I almost always... But you're looking, yeah. Yeah, like, I, of course, I don't spend hours doing it. I'll just kind of drop in and see what's going on. And these are everything I've been in communist group chats i've yeah. been in far right group chats i've been in k-pop group chats um, you know <laughs> well the k-pop you,
1: are the most dangerous ones is my understanding they're, they're, wild. The, most, they're yeah. the most dangerous people on twitter that's and what they are
0: so fast like i mean it's mostly kids obviously but yeah, it's yeah. insane how much they um they understand the, the twitter culture and how like they yeah. need to get things out and get them moving really quick but um yeah it's just it's just a it does help give you perspective, I guess, to, to see like how, um, especially anonymous accounts operate in group chats, Yeah, of, like the the sort of freedom to, it's like, it's like a little, like a sort of a distillation of, of the old 4chan and all that in some ways.
1: Yeah, I think, but, but I mean, it, Twitter also has something that, I mean, what you're saying about the speed of it, Twitter also has this thing that 4chan didn't, well, I don't know. I, I was never on 4chan. I've read it a few times and I think I was too old when I started trying to read it to understand it. I was more into like the message board culture, but the message boards they didn't have this thing of like, you know, what Twitter and Facebook just the the likes and the retweets and the shares. Maybe Tumblr had this. Maybe people who were on Tumblr understand Twitter a little bit better because things would get things would get reblogged and Mm -hmm. things had blow up so quickly. I think part of part of the way I've never really had a tweet go viral. Actually, my most popular tweet was like, um, it was this like anti-Trump tweet he said something about making a perfect phone call and i like put it into the lyrics of call me maybe or something like that <laughs> and um i wrote it basically like i was just like this is so stupid and corny and i was just like my followers are going to just be like oliver you're being stupid and corny again and a few of them retweeted it and then it got picked up by like a bunch of resistance accounts and it ended up with like ten thousand likes just like from people who actually thought it was really funny even though I'd it's always it the dumbest stuff way. that
0: goes viral it's always
1: the dumbest stuff dumbest stuff that goes viral So the fact, I think the fact that I don't go viral and I think it's because my experience of the internet really is as of a bunch of like, um, it's very pre-social media in a way. It's as a bunch of these very tight-knit communities, um, more like the group chats, things like that. And what I'm used to is more like you act slightly differently with every group, right? In my group chat, that's like all very intense Catholics, which I'm not, I'm not going to talk about certain things that I might talk about in the group chat that is literally called fellas, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And the group chat with the fellas, you might talk about certain things you do that you wouldn't talk about with Catholic mothers, right? Yeah, right. So that's, you know, I think my experience of the old internet, the Discord servers, the group chats and things like that fit with it a lot better than this genuinely public and global phenomenon of social media.
0: Well, that's what it is, because the new internet's like it's it's a this it's a combination of the old internet with this new like macro level internet where i i refer to them as rooms i'll be like yeah we're all on twitter we're all in these different rooms you might be in weird twitter's room or philosophy twitter's room or sports twitter's room or whatever it might right. be but these rooms all have their doors open and anytime you know you you tweet something that starts to get retweeted and amplified into these other rooms Eventually, it always has the potential to reach the room. You know, the macro level where everybody is, and then suddenly, especially with someone's writing like yours, you almost—I'm not saying you don't want to, because it would be still—you'd still get clout and readership and all that. But like once you get into that macro level room, you're no longer speaking to your audience; you're speaking to people who know nothing about you, and, and context matters not at all yeah and then now, you get the context collapse i think they call it yeah really. yeah exactly and then that's a difficult I, we all i mean I've, I've never i've had i've had tweets go viral like big big tweets go viral but they're old they've only ever been um in relation to memes essentially so they, right. weren't, they weren't anything um with consequence and I, I think like if you're talking about like political cultural commentary that's like yeah. it's a time bomb i would say for almost everybody except for left twitter i think Mm -hmm. left slash weird twitter is this weird they maybe they wouldn't want to admit but i think they own such a large amount of capital on twitter because they've been on it like weird twitter is one of the original subs. one of the original
1: twitters and they're very good at it and they they started it as something awful and they learned twitter you know and they have there's so many you know drill and the the accounts that are kind of like mini drills you know Mm -hmm.
0: And um, even the public personas, like even a lot of the reporters like, uh, Ken Klippenstein or Klippenstein, a yeah, lot like, of yeah, yeah. these yeah. figures who are in that space, you know, like they can tweet pretty super yeah. inflammatory stuff. It can explode to the point where it's
1: trending on Twitter and they don't really deal with that really, much yeah. consequence. It doesn't really matter that much. I think even like, um, yeah, like the Brunigs, I think maybe in a certain sense came from weird Twitter, like Ryan Cooper, I think has, mm-hmm. is linked to weird Twitter. Yeah. And I think, um, at a certain point, it's partly just about like what, you know, your posse to a certain extent, right? It's about kind of who you have behind you and- um and who, who you roll up with, like how- Exactly, many yeah, 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 you up. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, um, well, this is stupid, but I was just gonna say, this is like why, you know, uh, in, in one of Plato's dialogues, Socrates suggests that, like we shouldn't ever write anything down. We should just talk to each other. And I think it's basically for this reason that once you start writing things down, you know, they're going to be misinterpreted. Right. Um, and like I think form, um, we're getting further and further from the, the true form of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and from and, you know, yeah. yeah. And from, you know, from what you truly believe, you know, but I'm sure we've also both done it ourselves. You know, you read something and you say, oh, I'm sure this means this thing. And somebody else explains, well, in the context of like, there's been like a dozen articles about this and blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's hard to be on both sides of it. Right. You're always you're talking across a gap, although the assumptions that people make sometimes are really funny. I've never had quite the thing where somebody's like, did you read the article? And then I'm like, I wrote the article. But there was one thing where one of my tweets got attacked by a few people. And um, somebody found in 2018, I wrote a review of Jordan Peterson's book, along with the Chapter Trap House. Book. Oh, yeah, that was a great and, article. Um, yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's that's probably one of my, I mean that's one of my best it was um, genius pairing them together it's like yeah i was so happy when, when the pairing came up it was just like it, it it i think it was genuinely unexpected and i think it genuinely did fit together so i was incredibly happy with it um so somebody I had, I had had this out of the pen tweet for a while and somebody got mad at me in some other thread and obviously went to my profile and looked for other things to get angry about as people do and they responded to this pin tweet and they were like oh i just knew that somebody like you would be a jordan peterson fan <laughs> <laughs> i responded to them i was like it's a negative review you didn't read the review it's just you can just click the thing that you're responding to that's great and then they were like okay maybe it was a negative review but like i, I given the other things you said you have to admit that i was like right in assuming that you should be or something oh, and i was man. like what are you talking about what do you mean what are you talking about so i think that one problem that i run into again this goes back to my conceit of myself as being like you know uncategorizable and like a real you know Really, sui generis, and things like that. To perceive the the this big room that you're talking about, right? To perceive the vast kind of like diversity of people, we need. I guess to, we should call it the house. To be a house, let's the, call it the house. Yeah, That's beautiful. Analogy, yeah. To to be in the house, right? You have to you have to figure out what room people are coming from. Let's say, right? You have to be able to categorize people. You have to be able to say, oh, you're these this you're this kind of person. You're that kind of person, right? Just to be able to interact with this many people, to be able to perceive the fact that there are this many people out there, mm-hmm. right? So there's a, there's a certain extent to which like, it's hard to blame somebody if if they're like, okay, I'm just gonna categorize you as like, you said this thing about like evolutionary psychology and I categorize that as like Jordan Peterson-esque. So I'm just putting you in the Jordan Peterson box. That is to an extent the way that people's brains work. And I've definitely done that, um, you know, to other people. You know, if people are using kind of social justice buzzwords, I'm going to say you're in my social justice box now. Right. It doesn't mean sure. that I, you know, I don't block them or anything. Um, the only person I've ever blocked on Twitter was somebody who uh, used to be a friend of mine and then started like quote tweeting everything I said with an insult and wrong. then DM me. And was That's like, please, please block me. I kind of like, can't stop <laughs> insulting you. And I was like, okay. Then I saw recently he still is insulting me from behind the block, but um, <laughs> so so obviously, black. obviously I didn't, I didn't help him in any way. I feel really bad about it. Cause obviously I must've done something wrong. Um, but he also sounds you know, more like a, their problem for what it's worth. Yeah, I mean, at this point it is, but, but maybe I caused their problem, but, um, <laughs> anyway, I don't block people. I only meet people. Um, and I'm also really bad about usually when I see that little button where it's like view muted tweet, I just click it. Oh yeah. Me um, too. Of course. It's just terrible. So I just yeah. don't, I don't take care of my, I don't curate yeah. my experience in the right way <laughs> at all. I follow way too many people. Um, I follow way too many girls. <laughs> especially on Twitter. So yeah, I have all these problems with not using the site in the right way. And that probably contributes <laughs> to like all the, all the reasons that I'm constantly uh, deactivating and the fact that I spend too much time on it.
0: Right. Well, um, I, I kind of want to like, let me just tie this into something else I wanted to ask you because yeah, yeah. Like going through this difficulty of navigating the, the different rooms and all of that. I mean, you, you mentioned, I think you, at least you alluded to it earlier um, mm-hmm. in our talk that you've, you've been someone over the years who's, yeah, you kind of came into the space critiquing the sort of social justice left. um, But then over time, you know, you started to kind of build a critique then of the IDW and a lot of the anti-woke stuff. So you kind of, you have, um, to the point of that that person who tried to troll you over thinking that you're a Jordan Peterson fan you, you have enough cred or whatever you want to call it you know to kind of be like hey look you know I, I at least have a self-criticism even if I do agree or I'm associated with this this group or that person um so like how do you and I, I know and I, this is a weird question I know you've you've um again you probably have similar notions to me in this way it's difficult to talk about but I just want to poke you on it and see see if you have i'm sure you've thought about it before yeah uh, what how do you um how do you self-identify ideologically or like I, I, cause I know my assumption just projecting onto you is that you know i think i've maybe even said this to you before i i kind of feel like you're what i would consider like a new conservative or like a a good faith conservative you know how i look at um like the sort of how the way in which conser- at least cultural conservatives mm-hmm. in recent years have really drifted into populism um both uh, policy wise and rhetoric wise you know it's it's very much like it's strongly on the otherizing of x mm-hmm. group you know otherizing immigrants otherizing um you know lgbtq people and and so on um and you obviously don't exhibit those that same behavior that same rhetoric but at the same time you do kind of Broadly, you know, act as like a more cultural. Like I'm pumping the brakes. Pumping yeah, yeah. This, this type of stuff, and of and of course, language is tricky. Maybe you view yourself more as like a liberal in the classical sense, not in the Dave Rubin sense, of course, but the right. real sense. But I don't know how do you, how do you think about that? Like, do you have a label? It's, do you do you like to talk about that? Or
1: it's such a difficult question. I mean, politically, again, this is a kind of tribal thing. But um, I've just always been a Democrat. I. Don't you know when I watch a Republican primary, I'm interested in, in, in like an objective horse racy kind of way, but I don't really have preferences among Republican candidates. I don't know why that is. Um, a few people have tried to be like Oliver, given the things you write, you should like consider becoming a Republican. I don't think too much about politics. One one reason is that like I really think that to have to have like really strong opinions on politics, uh, you should understand economics and and mm. economic issues. And uh I don't really. I have a lot of friends who are libertarians and I have a lot of friends who are Marxists. And uh, I don't, I don't, I don't.
0: Like if you were boxing in a room with that libertarian or Marxist friend, you don't feel confident enough economically
1: to be like, I, I, I substantiate I, where I. Exactly. Tire. I wouldn't try to take them down. Right. Cause I just yeah. don't know enough. And in part, so one thing I am tactical about is sometimes I look at certain debates and I'm like, it's really okay that I don't have a stake in that debate. And I don't need to know anything more about it. I don't want to be part of it. I don't want to feel that I have a view that I have to express. Um, I just don't want to have a position on it. Most economic debates are about this. Um, Israel is a debate like this um, for me. And um, that has been really good for me because I already argue about way too much, but it also makes it hard to really feel that I have like a robust um, political identification. To a certain extent, There's there's like one group of people who kind of assume that I agree with them about everything that I don't talk about. And then there's another group of people who kind of assume that I disagree with them about everything that I don't talk about. With regards to conservatism, um, I do find a lot of my young conservative friends who obviously I've made through doing this online writing and stuff like that. There's a shift within the Republican Party and the broader conservative movement, obviously, that you're aware of away from kind of the Reagan era and and libertarian consensus, away from the fusionism of fusionism was a word. My understanding is fusionism was a word for the, the, the combination of libertarian economic thought and social conservatism. Right. And what you, part of what you have now is some of the libertarians are becoming more Democrats and a lot of the social conservatives are becoming less libertarian. Mm. Um,
0: there's this like kind of new, uh, it's it's a meme, but there's that new like neoliberal movement where there's like uh-huh. there's like the progressive sock dem wing of that, but then there's the yeah. center-right wing of that. That's, that's yeah, form.
1: And the thing is, you know, again, I, I like plenty of the I'm mutuals with the our neoliberal account on Twitter. You know, um, I like plenty of the the neoliberals. Sometimes they say things that um, really make me think that I experience the world in a different way than they do. For example, I once had a conversation with a self-identified neoliberal who said something like, um, sex work should be legal because when you do something as a job, you get better at it. So the more sex workers there are and the higher proportion of sex comes from sex work, the better sex everybody will be having. (laughs) And I was just like, I don't, I just think that like my perception of sex is just like at such a distance from this person's perception of sex. And that sort of conversation makes me think maybe I should just convert to Catholicism. Yeah, they're because treated like, like
0: it's an economic. Just exactly. Like a, it's, it's very. Like a...
1: And I just I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not that way. Um, but I'm also not, you know, I, I meet people on Tinder. Right. Like I'm not like I'm not a Catholic. I'm a degenerate by like most Catholic <laughs> standards. In a way, I just think of myself as like what what a kind of left-leaning Democrat would have been like 20 years ago. I basically, a lot of my political views um, kind of calcified when I was a teenager um, during the Iraq war and things like that. And in a kind of anti-curious way, you know, in a way that isn't the way I am about things that I really care about, like philosophy and art and things like that. But to a certain extent, I really haven't updated a lot of them. And I'm kind of happy because I think that a lot of the updating that like people I know have done over the past decade has been in line with this great awakening stuff, which I'm, which of course I'm very, very skeptical of. But in terms of like affectively, I'm interested in the possibility that these kind of like socially conservative Marxists will find a way to like join up with like the Marco Rubio's of the world and form this like crazy new coalition that is completely different from what I've known my whole life. I'm not interested in it because I will vote for it. I'll just keep voting for like whichever Democrat seems the most trustworthy to me every election, right? But if like I am, like you said, I'm a contrarian. I'm anti-institutional to a strong degree. I'm kind of populist in my epistemology. I think experts know less than we think and normal people know more than we think. Mm. Um, It's not to say that normal people are trustworthy. It's just that most people aren't trustworthy and normal people, at least when there's kind of like skin in the game when there's some consequence to their belief normal people i think have relatively reliable uh belief forming mechanisms and experts have less skin in the game than they ought to Mm. and of course there's i wrote something on the replication crisis i reviewed stuart Ritchie's book about the replication crisis i think um in fields that are adjacent to woke stuff especially social psychology there there were just like years of bad results being pushed as science um, and being accepted by experts.
0: Right. Like papers Um, that were
1: just like, what was it
0: like? I don't I forget the original study, but isn't it like 40 or 50 or 60 percent of papers couldn't be replicated?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's It's hard to. uh, I also, you know, in in true trying to do this thing the right way fashion, if something doesn't replicate, it doesn't 100 percent mean that the original paper was wrong or that it was done in a bad way or anything like that. The failure to replicate has to be interpreted as well, so it doesn't mean that fifty percent of results were false, but it might. Um, and, to, and to your broader
0: point, like the, kind of speaking to your populism in this way, I think it's important um, for maybe people to understand that there's when we think about like the kind of COVID world that we're in, or post not post, but you know, kind of post the the initial like drum of it all. Um, we start to see the thing that gets the most mainstream attention from the pop, like from the the masses, we'll say, just the average people is the sort of conspiracy theory um, propensity that so many people have just because it's the most uh, click-worthy, it's the most sensationalist, it's the most crazy thing that we're seeing from it all. But to your point, there's also a broader skepticism among the general public of these institutions that isn't often taken seriously by the people in those positions. Mm -hmm. And with that, they're unable to strengthen their own institutions and credibility. It's like, not only the replication crisis, but even like uh, thinking about like the motivations behind what perhaps why that even came to be thinking about how there aren't incentives in academia to publish repeat papers or like or or stuff yeah. that that, you know, try to, you know, suss out, you know, is this something that is a valid or not. And there's more, there's more money in novelty. There's more money in new studies. There's more, there's more monies in papers that will already kind of affirm like an institution's uh, biases or a cultural prejudice. And these are all things that I think um, they don't, like you're saying, they don't um, completely discredit these institutions or experts or anything like that, but they offer up a valid critique that, warrants more investigation and warrants just more honesty with people because without yeah. that it does it only feeds this sort of populist energy where people feel like they're being lied to and that they're not un, they're, they're not being told everything by these experts and they're they're being looked down at down the nose at you know or like these people yeah in, in their, their their pulpit or whatever it might be and that's that's a that's a good critique to have i think when it's when it's a level
1: yeah and i think the the so i'm going to go back to what we were talking about before but i just wanted to say the what you're saying about like the skepticism whether it's right or wrong has to be taken seriously um i think this was one of the, ele- the the lessons of the 2016 election right one of the lessons of the clinton campaign was like there there were reasons that that clinton was unpopular right and um one of the views that people within the democratic party had was sort of like well the people who dislike her are wrong to dislike her they dislike her for the wrong reasons. Or a sexist, lot of them are just sexist, yeah. right?
0: Yeah.
1: And um, it turns out that even if that's true, like they still vote, right? Even if it's true that a lot of the people who are skeptical of, of science at the moment um, just don't understand what's going on with it, um, they're still part of the society, right? So I think it's just one of the, the broad lessons. And you saw this with the media, right? Like how often did the media crow about Donald Trump's low approval ratings? And it's true. Trump was just as poorly liked as Clinton, right? They were both very unpopular candidates, and he was a very, very unpopular president. But then if you look at the media's approval ratings, right, the media that is being so happy about Trump having low approval ratings, the media's approval ratings were like 15 or 20%, (laughs) right? Then you look at Congress, they're like 10%, right? So all these people who are like, everybody hates Trump so much, you have to look at the context. Nobody likes anything right now. Yeah, Um, There's no person, no institution that's like trusted. We're at a moment of extremely low social trust in institutions and in individuals.
0: Um, it's been trending that way for It's decades. been trending
1: that way overall. Yeah, um, Yeah. so it's a, it's a very strange moment that I think has not been um, taken seriously enough. And it is not, I don't think, some people say the right way to take it seriously is to say, this is, this low trust is the product of a propaganda machine, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think that's the way to take it seriously, right? No. Like, but, um, you know, if if your girlfriend is mad at you, you don't say, well, your anger is like the product of a propaganda machine, so I can understand where <laughs> yeah. it came from, so I so I understand you now, right? right? No, you have to understand it from her perspective, right? So you need to understand this low trust from the, from the perspective of the people who become skeptical.
0: And I think along with that, this is um, something that I'm often critical of when I see it on Twitter. I graduated graduated high school in 2010 and Mm -hmm. um, that's the year that I kind of had my ideological awakening, whatever you want to call it, where I got really into the new atheist scene. Mm -hmm. Um, I got into um, Noam Chomsky, bought a bunch of Chomsky books. You know, I was just, you know, I didn't know shit about shit. I was just kind of like, I was into YouTube debates and I was just trying to like dip my toes um, in. And I understood that and even i'll even say this is maybe just like a a, like a gem for anybody who might even know the reference but even back then there were these uh like compilation videos on youtube of joe rogan podcasts Mm -hmm. where joe rogan back then was way more purely anti-establishment in a less politicized or ideological way than he is today where he's a lot more right-leaning at least per his attitudes and the guests he has on Back then, he was like purely when he talked politics, it was all anti-military industrial complex. It was like, you know, anti, you know, establishment for like talk like drug legal or drugs being illegal, that type of thing. And they used to do these compilations that were just like really, you know, getting into Operation like Northwoods and MK Ultra uh. and stuff like that. There's been as like a kid, I was 18 years old. I was like, man, this is like I never um, have heard of this stuff or seen this stuff. And it was right. like mind bending to me at the time. And um, I think I do think culturally, when we talk about this stuff at a broad level, that there is something to the argument of like manufactured consent, like Chomsky's mm-hmm. thesis from decades ago. At this point, I do think that exists. I mean, I work in advertising. I, I know the power of PR. I know the power of of influence and manipulation to people mm-hmm. um, in, in various forms of media. That said, I do think to to your point that people often fall back on things like manufacturing consent. As a sort of catch-all excuse for why people believe the things they believe, when oftentimes it's more like it's more like those those beliefs are impacted by cultural trends, and then many like manu- consent is manufactured through political ideologues or corporations or opportunists who can then tap in to that cultural unrest. Like I don't think a Rush Limbaugh would have gotten off the ground in the late '80s, early '90s if there hadn't been a cultural movement at the in the underbelly. To, to be there for it. So when we talk about right. it, it's kind of this like two prong thing. We're like, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe it's a loop. where like, you know, the, the, the propaganda feeds into it, but propaganda only wor- is effective insofar as there's like a cultural underbelly yeah. and also like economic disenfranchisement mm-hmm. and, and factors like that to, to make it so, which is interesting.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And there's a mix of, it's difficult for me because I do, I do have this overriding view of like, we should be more skeptical of the rationality of experts and more trusting of the rationality of normal people. When you look at anybody, and it's almost like the way we were talking about our own beliefs right at the beginning of this conversation, right? If you look at anybody, the reasons that they say and believe the things that they do, it's a mix of rational and irrational factors, right? And it's a mix of even the irrational factors, you know, some of them will be understandable and some of them will be not understandable, right? Like, so why might a you know a poor white person might be you know driven to racism by you know believing certain things about crime which could be rational kind of from their perspective or by by not being able to find work uh and thinking that all the jobs were taken by you know like illegal immigrants right. which which could be irrational but kind of like understandable you know like It'd everybody need everybody yeah you, you can kind of understand why because everybody needs to find work. Right. You know, and then at the, you know, at the end of the day, there could also be an irrational impulse to just like everybody wants to have somebody who's like lower on the totem pole than they are. Yep. We would say that that's like an irrational reason for the belief that is not understandable. Right. Um, or, or at least not um, that is reprehensible. Right. Um, so some irrational impulses we say, okay, you know, like you're economically disenfranchised. Um, I'm not going to blame you for it. Right. So I'm not going to blame you for this belief. Other irrational influences, we would say, okay, I do blame you for being influenced in this way because it's not good to like want to dominate other people or something like that. So there's all these different ways in which we judge each other. This is what, uh, for the class I'm teaching in the fall, I'm writing a, kind of like a book um, called Political Beliefs. Um, and the one of the sections that I've completed is on the different ways that we judge each other for beliefs. So sometimes we judge each other based on whether the beliefs conform to the evidence. Other times we judge each other based on what our, what our beliefs say about our characters. Right. It's not clear to what extent we should do the latter. Um, it's a, it's a vexed issue in philosophy. But yeah, I think what you said is completely correct about the, the, it's bi-directional whatever relationship we take to be the propagandistic relationship. Um, it's not like people just eat up, whatever. If that were the case, then this kind of widespread skepticism would be inexplicable, right? If people just ate up whatever was told to them, why wouldn't people just believe the media, right? Right. So you have to explain, in the the current day, people are getting a ton of messages from a ton of sources, right? You have to explain, you have to have an explanation of, here's why they actually believe this one message over this other message. And I think, like I said, I think it's going to be a, 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 a... a mix of rational and irrational factors. And just like we were talking about with the grifters and the virtue signaling and stuff like that, I think you have to start with the rational factors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's dismissive not to, um, and it's usually unproductive not to, and it also can be kind of hopeless not to, right? Like if you just view, you just say people are fundamentally irrational and will believe anything, well... What are you supposed to do then? Like what's the next step?
0: Right, yeah, it's it's um, so disempowering. That's that's what I yeah. hate about people that use those those excuses as a catch-all because uh, you can completely use them as a in, like a partial analysis, like a tool to be like, yeah, it's like here this explains x percentage of of this cause or this reason, but you can't use it as a catch-all to be like this is why the things are the way they are. It just strips people of their individual agency.
1: Yeah, I I I uh, I completely agree. And it's something I, I struggle with a lot, and sometimes I don't succeed because part of my, like part of my corpus in writing anti-woke stuff, part of what we do is we write these articles that are like, why we all think woke beliefs are nonsense. So like, why do they, why do woke people like, why is there this mass movement? So it's hard to balance disagreeing with somebody in a way that kind of projects them as being a reasonable person with also um, offering a diagnosis at a kind of societal level or, or cultural mm. level.
0: You have to kind of do the thing, you have to practice the thing that you're criticizing your opponents for doing essentially, which is, you know, hit them at their, their strongest point and believe they have good intent and all of that. And um, if you don't, you essentially can expect the same sort of, um, of uh, backlash as to like what they see. Yeah. You're saying with Trump in 2016, it'll be the same result.
1: Yeah. I think the the way that I try to manage it is that basically, and maybe this is part and parcel of my kind of anti-institutionalism, my contrarianism about groups, things like that. I basically think of like addressing broad social movements or institutions as like a different kind of project than addressing individuals, right? Um, In a way that maybe is pathological and is itself maybe not completely rational. Um, Maybe if people watch to the end of this, they'll have some opinions about whether it actually makes sense that I do things this way. But um, basically if I'm talking about an institution or about a group of people or about a social movement writ broadly, I view it as okay to think about like the background dynamics that could lead to these beliefs happening rather than only thinking about kind of the content of the beliefs and what could like, what, what it would look like to disagree reasonably. Mm -hmm. And when I'm dealing with an individual on a one-to-one level, that's when I think, you should never say like you are just a grifter or like you are just virtue signaling, right? Among other reasons, like why, why even have the conversation at that point? So I think I basically the way I manage it is by treating individuals and groups just like in fundamentally different ways. And I don't know, I don't know if that even makes sense to do. I was, was going to say like the it, way I do it.
0: No, it does, and I try to do the same thing. But then you think optically, it has to. We have to convince ourselves it matters because, it, like, ultimately our goal is to improve the discourse in some way. Right. But at the same time, it's like we know people attach themselves to their group mm-hmm. identity and um, the institutions they follow, the people, the sources they follow. So it's like, it's similar to me. I talk to my wife about this all the time. Like I'll try to couch, not all the time, but like I'll often try to couch um, posts I'll do on my personal Facebook, which is also like people from my hometown you know, are, are much mm-hmm. more uh, right lean in. I'll try to couch it, you know, in a way where I'm like, make doing what you're saying, making more kind of broad brush systemic yeah. takes and not like individual attacks. But people, what well, at least most times, not all times, but most times people just they attach themselves to those things. It's like if you criticize something the Trump administration does. People think, you know, you're criticizing them because they love Trump. But it's like right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, it's so difficult to navigate, but not it's not futile. I do. I do agree with you that there's there's um there's a utility and yeah that.
1: yeah i think there's a utility but it's also you know kind of like you said you kind of have to have a suspension of disbelief to do it right because you know that the reason that groups have these dynamics is because individuals ha- attach themselves to groups in this way groups just are you know conglomerates of individuals you know if all the individuals were rational and were worth disagreeing with in a reasonable way then the group you know then the groups would not look the way that they yeah. do and the institutions would not look the way yeah, yeah. So so something. there must be some point at which something goes wrong. So, you know, it can't be that, like, intellectually speaking, this division of labor is, like, completely responsible. I just think it's, I think it's, like, a good heuristic for how to, to do two fundamentally different kinds of thinking. But, yeah, I think if you believe that, like, you know, as I do, that to a certain extent, like, virtue signaling is a way of understanding what's happening at the group level um, of, like, woke people, then you, you, I must believe to be rational, like to, to be consistent. I must think that at least some individuals are doing virtue signaling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would never, I would never use it as a way of like stopping debate with individuals, but it's just you have to think that somebody is being irrational in that way if you think right. that the group works that way. And you can. Usually, Sorry, I was just like working no, this out. No, in front no, you're of you.
0: you're totally good. Yeah. I have to work through it too. I mean, you can usually not all the time but my my measurement usually is how the conversation starts to break down if you're being polite and engaging honestly yeah. and then the other person starts to get defensive angry at those at the honest engagement you can usually tell pretty quickly if this is something that you know that they're actually approaching in good faith or if it was just kind of like a flavor of the week thing that they threw out and they weren't expecting to engage at like a meta level or whatever because most most people but but that's even difficult because most people aren't ready to do that even if they do sincerely fully
1: believe the thing yeah so it's tough but i've caught myself doing that too you know like because i have such a variety of followers every now and then i'll i'll tweet like some joke or something and you know one of my like more woke or at least like anti-anti-woke followers will will be like well hey like don't you think that it's actually like this and like the first thought will be like hey you know like I'm doing a little signaling here, right? Like there's a little red meat yeah, for my people, on, you let, know, like, like the, let, let, let me, the let game. me get a little, you know, like yeah. let me play the game a little bit. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I'm not proud of it, but I've definitely, you know, I've definitely done that. And I've, I feel like I've, I've kind of like irked friends by, by like, trying to have a real conversation with them when they were doing that too. Um, you gotta have fun sometimes. And like, yeah, yeah.
0: Know, you're not always going to meet people like perfectly sometimes you yeah, like yeah. you wanted to troll yeah. a little bit and someone else.
1: is gonna. That's be the other thing, you know, I think for me, the, the best relationships I have across lines, one thing that characterizes them is uh, there's this feeling of like we'll we'll try again tomorrow, mm. you know. They they don't catastrophize if there's a breakdown in communication or if there's if they're just like you're just not getting it, you know. You're just not getting this one. You're just like you know. Well, okay, you know. Next time we'll do better. You know. Yeah,
0: let's take a step back. Um, we'll have to cancel and each other.
1: Yeah, and I think that that, that is something that there are a lot of people i'm lucky that i've formed a large enough group of people um on twitter that there is quite a few people who i have faith that if i do something that they think is just ridiculous we'll be able to do that but not everybody um and you know it is core i think it does go along with who i think the smarter people are but only to an extent there are some smart people who are not tolerant in that way let's say
0: well twitter is a funny place for that for um for intelligent people in general i think it's, it has a, it has a funny way of making smart people look dumb and dumb people look smart yeah yeah how you understand the language and the culture it, yeah so it's it's tough
1: yeah i basically i basically agree with that um <laughs>
0: uh yeah. Yeah, this has been great, man. Yeah, uh, this
1: has been a lot of fun. I uh, you know, like I said before, some of this stuff I hadn't really thought about in detail before. So I was kind of working through some of it as we were talking. So no, me too. So it's, it it's
0: good to tease out. Um and I think, yeah, it's always it's like a the the space that we occupy is um complicated and there's not like a there's not a lot of meta analysis out there, yeah, but uh, the broad there's a lot of like individual blogs and takes and whatnot, but it's nice to be able to talk it out, so I really appreciate yeah. you um you coming on for this um do you have anything you want to plug or anything you got coming up uh, that
1: you want oh see? uh gosh, a lot of the things I'm writing these days are, are kind of like. For some reason, I got myself into a round of, like, problematic things. Um, <laughs> the last thing that <laughs> I had published... Getting you in trouble. Yeah, exactly. The last thing that I had published was um, this thing about why people shouldn't be, like, too intense about the name critical race theory. You right. know, like, people vaguely know what we're talking about. And, like, you know, let's, like, talk about the substance of it, which is kind of like, I don't know. Maybe it's not right. Maybe it's not the sort of take that I would have with some other topics. So I'm not 100% sure about it anymore. Then... I'm writing a piece about arguments that say that basically that say that like wokeness is a new religion. Mm. Um, and I, uh, I think these arguments are a little bit too easy to make. People make them a bit too quickly. They don't define what a religion is or anything like that. But I also, ha- I, I I kind of make a weird argument in the piece that's like, if you add all of them up, it's like a lot of different reasons for thinking this that mm. people have offered kind of like individually. So once you see them all at the same time, you can kind of come up with a story on which the religion appellation or or whatever you want epithet or whatever you want to call it right. uh kind of makes sense as something to attach to it um so we'll see if that if that ends up being accepted if that comes out and yeah the the big thing that i that i mentioned um I have this like relatively academic thing I'm writing well it is it's very academic. it has like a hundred footnotes already um or something uh on the nature of political beliefs so it's a it's a book project basically in epistemology um about the epistemology of politics and about what people ought to believe about politics uh so that i'm gonna keep working on for probably maybe six more months or something like that um as i teach this class in the fall so great people are looking for some christmas reading maybe i'll post it on twitter (laughs) i don't have like a publisher or anything for it
0: yeah hey nowadays you don't necessarily need one yeah that's um, the
1: funny thing that's the other funny thing about twitter right like I think I might just put a PDF up on my Dropbox and put yeah. it on Twitter because, like, who cares? If I, if I do it with an academic publisher, it'll get, like, a few dozen readers. I, I don't know. It's not why I write, right? You know, like, I don't write to be part of one of these little rooms. Mm. You know, I, I write to kind of connect people from different rooms together i guess or to alienate every room <laughs> or something who knows Who knows? Great, know. that's a knows? great way
0: to, to cap it all. good way to end it yeah cool yeah. well, why again I, I appreciate the time it's been fun we'll have to, we'll do it again sometime yeah yeah i had a lot of fun thanks for having me yeah thanks oliver